reading in verse 7 uh, through verse 13, and actually our text will be verses 8 through 13 this morning. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray now that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to your, to your own glory. And also for our benefit, that we would trust in you and the gospel of your son and your son himself. And that you would help us to follow him more closely, to walk in his ways out of love and thanksgiving to you. So that you would be honored by us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we work our way through Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, we come in chapter 15 to this last section, I should say the last portion of this section in his letter. Remember, at chapter 14, in the first verse, he began to talk about the weak and the strong Christians there at Rome, and uh, he makes it very evident that there was at least potential for division in that church because of this, and probably there was. And as he talks about that issue, he gives several admonitions. In chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. In chapter 14 and verse 19, he says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. And things by which one may edify one another. Chapter 15, verse 1, he says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 7, Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And so remember, we've seen that the, the weak, they wouldn't eat certain foods. The weak, they would observe certain days, and the strong in the faith, they would eat whatever they wanted. And the strong, they didn't see one day as holier than the other, you know, all these holy days on the calendar, whatever it may be. And we've talked about the possibility that it could be that those early Christian Jews were still a little hesitant to let go of the observance of some of those festival days, those holy days, according to their Old Testament ceremonial calendar, and uh, likewise with some of the foods they were forbidden to eat, they just couldn't yet in good conscience eat of them. And so Paul is basically telling the stronger to bear up with their scruples, give them some time, 
and carry them, carry the weight as it were, in fact, lead them to come to a place where they come out of that. And uh, it could be that is the situation. And so the strong, they are the ones who are saying, you know, the, the tendency would be to say, come on, you can eat, sit down, eat, just eat it, or forget about that day. And the weak would look at the strong and say, well, are they, are they really faithful to God? Are they true Christians? And so there's that possibility. It could have been as well that some of the Gentiles came out of a pagan background and brought their culture, their tradition into the church. And so not everyone shared that culture or tradition. And so there's this intermingling. And yet they all have the same God, the same Savior, the same faith, the same gospel, the same word of God. And so they are eventually to come together. And we've been looking at that here in this section of Paul's letter. And so as he concludes this section, he exhorts all the Christians, all believing Jews and all believing Gentiles to receive one another just as Christ, verse 7, received us or received you to the glory of God. When we do this, first of all, we're commanded to, and when we do it, we bring glory to the living God because of our unity together. And so our purpose this morning is to look at verses 8 through 13 to follow the divine uh, reasoning, the logic, the flow of the passage, and to make application. That's what we're going to do, Lord willing, this morning. So as we do that, there's three headings. I'm going to break the passage down into three sections. Uh, the first is Christ's uh, reception of us. The second is our reception of each other. And then last, our transformation by the Word and the Spirit, which might seem out of place, but I don't think it is. So first of all, Christ's reception of us, that's there in verses 8 and 9. Remember in verse 7, he gives us the command we're to receive one another just as in the same way, to the same degree, as also Christ received us. And so in verses 8 and 9, uh, he begins to talk about the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians there. Uh, just notice the, the terminology there in verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, Messiah, anointed one, has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So that's a loaded sentence, and it would conjure up in the mind of the Jewish people the Old Testament, their history. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, there's the servant. He calls Jesus uh, the servant to the circumcision. Remember Isaiah's servant and the prophet Isaiah talks about this servant, this one who would come, the Messiah, and it culminates in the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He would be an offering for the sins of his people. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and in Matthew 20, in verse 28, he says, I did not come to be what? Served. I came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He's the servant of Philippians 2 and so forth. And then he talks about the circumcision. Well, circumcision was the initiatory right into the community of God's people. It was the covenant sign, right? Genesis 17, he gave it to, I to um, Abraham and Isaac eventually. And so the point is that um, he's talking about the Old Testament people of God. And then he says, for 
the truth of God. What does he mean by that? I think the idea is for the sake of the truth of God, Paul is underlying, underlining uh, the faithfulness of God to his promises in that Old Testament covenant. Jesus became the servant for the truth of God, for the faithfulness of God, to, to show and demonstrate that God is the one who is true to his promises. And then he says to confirm. And the word could be translated to secure. That's the idea, to bring to fruition, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So the fathers are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those after them. And the promises are the promises within the covenant or covenants, the Old Testament made to those patriarchs. And so Jesus, he is the servant. He is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of those things promised to God's Old Testament covenant people, the Jewish people. That's what Paul is saying there. And so he's talking about the fact that the gospel is that which God has promised to the circumcision. After all, if we were to investigate and go back and look, we'd find in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God made that promise to Abraham. He said to Abraham, in you, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 15, 5, it says that Abraham believed God and God credited that to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith in the promise of God. And Paul says in Galatians 3, and I think it's verse 13, that that promise was the gospel of God. God preached the gospel to Abraham. And so Paul himself in the book of Acts, as he stood before Agrippa to give his defense, an account of the gospel that he had preached how he'd committed no crime and so forth. In Acts 26 and verse 6, Paul said before Agrippa, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So there's no doubt that Paul the Apostle sees all of those promises in the Old Testament fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore fulfilled in the servant that is Jesus Christ himself. So the question is, well, what about the Gentiles? Well, in Romans 3.29, Paul asks this question, is he God? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? And the question is yes. And so Paul begins in verse 9 to talk about the Gentile believers there at Rome. And, and by the way, the, the word underneath our English for Gentile in the New Testament, there in verse 9, the Greek word under our English word is ethne or ethnos, ethnic, Gentiles. I want you just to know that as we move through this passage and as you read your New Testament for that matter. And so he is indicating that the Jews partake of this promise too. Those who believe, of course, who believe the gospel. And he says, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so they too become partakers of the mercy of God. They to whom God had not shown mercy, Hosea says, he will show mercy. 
And so that is the joy of the gospel. And in Paul's letter, he's, he's done this already. He's shown this. And remember chapters 1 through 11 deal primarily with the teaching, the doctrine. And then chapter 12 begins with the application of the gospel and all of that doctrine in our lives, personally putting sin to death and so forth, but uh, offering our bodies a living sacrifice. And, and then he deals with the church and life in the body, and that's where he is now. And as he dealt with the whole doctrinal aspects and a- answering objections to the gospel, remember in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about the future of the Jewish people, why it is that some, in fact, most did not believe the gospel, And then he talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so in here, or in verse 9, he is just saying that the Gentiles partake of the gospel too. And by the way, as we think about that, and uh, the fact that God promised the gospel to the Jews as well as the uh, Gentiles, um, I just want to raise uh, an application here uh, on at least the social media of which I'm a part, not much, but um, there's a video circulating, and uh, it's, it's I, I didn't subscribe to it, but it just appears, probably because the things I do look at, there's this Jewish rabbi, and he's teaching why Jesus is not the Messiah, Jesus is not the Christ, and the reason he gives, he says, well, you know, there's Paul who teaches this, and, and Jesus, who, who was a rabbi, a teacher of sorts, but he wasn't the Messiah. They called for the abrogation of God's Torah, God's law. And so they say that, that Paul and Jesus have replaced the Torah with this teaching of justification by faith. To which we ought to say, look at what Paul does in Romans. Romans 3, Romans 4, Galatians 3. He shows that Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law, not by the works of the law. And I just point that out to you because it is out there. And at least once or twice in my life, I've come across uh, that objection in my everyday life. And so what is Paul's point in mentioning this here? The, The Jewish partakers of the gospel, the Gentile partakers of the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. What's the point? Well, first of all, I think we ought to see um, that the gospel has been and should be offered indiscriminately to all men regardless of their ethnicity. Okay? We, we must see that. Um, and we have many ethnicities, I think, Represented here from different nations all over the world and even in our broader church. It's to be offered to all sorts of men and women and children, the nations. We're to make disciples, Matthew 28, of all nations. That's our mission, our commission, our marching orders from Christ Himself. And so as we see that, this touches on what Paul has been dealing with this division in the church between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, the stronger and weaker Christians. And then so Paul, he wraps up this section with this charge 
noting the sweeping plan of God to include the Gentiles into the covenant community of God through Jesus Christ. But also, I think his point is to show that Jesus himself sacrificed. He, he became the servant for such people, Jewish people and Gentile people. And they're the ones who do not deserve it. It's not according to works, right? It's according to grace. It's according, he says here, to mercy. We have to remember that if we're going to apply what he says a little later and has already said. And so Jesus, then he came, he lived, he served, he died, uh, not only for his own people, the covenant community of the Old Testament, those who were the chosen in that situation, but also for those outside of that covenant community, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So Jesus himself, who was Jewish, Hebrew, he, he served and he died for people who were unlike him who had a different culture than him. Why? Because the gospel transcends culture. The gospel transcends nationality. We need to remember that as God's people in our marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we think about this, how then does this come to bear on us today in the church of Jesus Christ? That's the question. How do we apply this today? Well, that leads us to the second point, and that is our reception of one another. And that's there in verses uh, 10 through 12. So you'll notice there uh, the second half, really, of verse 9, when he says, as it is written. And so he's giving us proof of what he is saying. He's appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. He appeals to Psalm 18. He appeals to Deuteronomy chapter 32, Psalm 117, and then Isaiah 11 in that order. And if you have a cross-reference Bible, you can figure that out a little later. Look at the letters, the corresponding letters to the verses, and they will tell you where that is found in the Old Testament. And so note the progression here. In verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18 which says, for this reason, this is David, back in the Old Testament writings, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles. So David, he was going to go in and take the land, which he did. He brought peace. He was going to establish the worship of God in that land. And he would confess God among, in the midst, surrounded by the Gentiles. Then in verse 10, it says, he says, from Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So there, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, are commanded to rejoice, to worship God with God's people. And then in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you Gentiles. There's the command again. And so... They are commanded to do so in verse 11, which is from Psalm 117, on their own. On their own. And then he quotes in verse 12 from Isaiah 11, and it talks about the root of Jesse, Jesus himself, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, Jesus would rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the 
Gentiles shall hope. So there's a promise of future inclusion of the Gentiles into the Christian church. By the way, Isaiah 11 goes on to talk about the new heavens and new, new earth. And so Christ has begun his reign, his rule now, but it will continue. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, right? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. And it will include Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. As Revelation talks about men, women, and children from every tongue, tribe, and what? Nation. All sorts of tongues, different colored tongues, all sorts of languages that were spoken, all sorts of people and ethnicities. That's the point there. And so as we apply this today, remember verse 7. If you go back at chapter 15 and verse 7, Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That word received means, means welcome. Don't just do it because you have to. Do it cheerfully, and you welcome them. You invite them in. One another, the other Christian, just as Christ received you. Now, how did Christ receive us? Did Jesus look at us and say, oh, we are so lovely. We behaved so well. We are the shining example in our family, in our community. In fact, God is so impressed with us that he wants to come down and just shake our hand. No. In fact, the scripture says already in Paul's letter, in chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this goes back to our purpose, our intention for unity in the body of Christ. Bearing up with the scruples of others. We're not talking, again, we're not talking about condoning. We're not talk about, talking about promoting sin in the camp, in the body of Christ. But what we're talking about is differences. That we're to be intentional in bearing up with one another in the body of Christ. And, and he says, receive one another as Christ did us. He ate with sinners, tax collectors. Didn't mean he partook in sin. He did not. But he was intentional. And uh, if someone were to rub us the wrong way, to ruffle our feathers, how are we to respond to that? With grace and mercy for the sake of unity in the body. That's how. Just as Christ received you, he says. And so we have Christ's pattern for receiving one another. By the way, Christ's pattern of receiving one another is similar to his pattern for forgiving one another. Remember what Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 32. He says, and be kind to one another, you Christians, that's who he's talking to, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. We did not deserve the forgiveness of God that we received in and through Christ Jesus. Right? And so we are to forgive one another, just as God has forgiven us through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to nationality, that's another application here. 
Again, Christ receives men regardless of their ethnicity, their nationality. And I didn't say race, by the way, because guess what? There's only one race, the human race. That's a trap. When people talk about racism, there's one human race. Some people don't like it when you bring this up, by the way. We all bleed the same. We all are made in God's image. We're the image bearers of God. We come from different lands and different mothers and so forth. But there's one human race. There are different nationalities or ethnicities. And so what then will be our approach to those who are not like us, right? Who don't look like us. Some other cultures smell differently than us. They dress differently. You can imagine the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles just in their diet. You know, I, I've had one um, person associated with missionary work who um, talked about the quantity of milk consumption and, and dairy consumption in the American diet. And this, this person said, yeah, this, these ethnic people, they think we Americans smell like milk. I never, I never thought of that. Now, I have been around some ethnicities that they smell like garlic. Okay, I love garlic. You know, garlic breath is another thing. Uh, but these are these are not sin issues, are they? And that's what Paul is driving at here, I think, when he deals with this portion of his letter. And so there's spiritual maturity. Paul includes himself there in verse one of chapter fifteen among those who are the stronger. The weaker and the stronger were to bear up with one another. And we've talked about this as we've moved through this section. You know, he talked about food. He talked about alcohol. Maybe we could talk about cigars. Or having a nursery at the church. What? Some people say, what What are you talking about? Well, just think about it. In our circle, we come from the Reformed faith, covenantal. Yes, we believe children of parents, we believe children should be in the assembly. They're covenant children, right? 1 Corinthians 7, 14, so forth. They're to be in the assembly, no doubt. But then some people say, oh, children, they make, they make noise or they don't, parents don't know how to teach their children, so we have a nursery. So either we have a nursery or we don't. Well, maybe some would advocate for it, some wouldn't. But think about those who come in off the street who did not grow up in a Reformed church or they did not grow up in church or they struggle with their children. Maybe they're new Christians. So we offer a nursery for a season for those who, whose children can't sit and worship. By the way, I've had three children and um, I, I know what it's like. As a dad, I know what it's like to take them out of the service and bring them back in and wonder if I'm ever going to hear a whole sermon again. But see, that's part of bearing up with one another. And children, you know, you can't put them in a straight jacket. You can tape their mouths shut, but they'll suffocate. So they're children. And so we bear up with that. And yes, if the children's a, a distraction, if the child is a distraction, you take them out and into a nursery or deal with it. And hopefully one day we'll have a cry room and all of that. So enough about the nursery. Just to point out that that's one of those things in the life of the body. It's not a sin issue. I don't think it is. And uh, we, we, we um, meet people where they are. And that's an application of what Paul is, is saying here. We talk about our witness. 
And we could uh, make the application here. Why? Because Jesus, right, he talks about our unity in the body. He prays for that in John 17. And beloved, in a day of identity politics, let us be clear here. We are members of a divine organization, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body. And as such, we identify as Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones for whom he came and died and was raised again from the dead. So we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And we ought to glorify God with our bodies. And as Paul is driving home here, we ought to glorify God together. And if we do that, it doesn't mean that we're at the same place in our holiness and sanctification. doesn't mean we all have read Calvin's Institutes and the Westminster Confession and maybe not our Bibles. But what it does mean is that we are striving together. We are seeking to grow into a mature man, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. Which, by the way, we'll talk about in a moment, is through the Word of God. Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, that they, Father, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. So again, this is talking about Christian love, Christian harmony, Christian unity, not Christian uniformity. I've been in a church like that before, seen it before, where everyone looks the same, talks the same, and it's like, am I in a cult? What's going on here? So how are we to accomplish all of this? How does this actually happen individually and collectively in our lives? Well, we look there at verse 13. Uh, it happens by our transformation. And our transformation occurs by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So that's Paul's benediction, some, day, some say. It is his prayer. Uh, now may the God of hope, we aren't hopeless, Christ is our hope, may he fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what are we to do with this? Well, remember his audience, he's speaking to the Christians at Rome. In chapter 1 and verse 7, he says he's writing to the saints who are at Rome, those who have exercised faith in Jesus Christ. And so this type of unity is only possible on the part of those who are numbered among the true saints of God. But more than that, he says here that he prays for our hope, our joy, and our peace. You know, hope is looking forward to something with a um, uh, confident expectation. It's sure in our minds, and we look forward to it. And so we have all the promises of God. As Gentiles, Ephesians 2.12, we were without God and without what? Hope in the world. But now the gospel has come to us, Christ through the gospel. We have the hope of the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection of the body, eternal fellowship with the Son and other Christians forever in the new heavens and new earth. That last song we just sang, I was overcome, overwhelmed by the hope. In that, so, in that song. 
as joy is concerned, well, it's gladness, gladness of heart. We talked about it is a delight of the mind. From the consideration of the present or an assurance of an approaching possession of any good. Well, again, we have the promises of God, so we have hope. We even now have joy, and that gives us gladness. Joy, Galatians 5, is the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Maybe Paul has in mind Psalm 67, where it's talking about the gospel going to the Gentiles, and it says, let the nations, whenever you see nations or peoples, think Gentiles in the Bible. Let the nations be glad. Why? The gospel is going to go forth. You know, talking about internships, I I did a summer internship in New Jersey in 2005 in an area that once was permeated with the gospel. I got to stand in the same pulpit where Charles Hodge gave his licensure sermon. So some of you, you're like, who in the world is Charles Hodge? Others of you are like, wow. Okay, but this area, we would go to the store and people had these somber, sour, sad looks on their faces. Here's my wife smiling. Hey, hey, how are you? And we're talking about in the grocery stores, not at the church where I served. They were happy. They were glad because they had the gospel. Point is, the gospel had been long gone, and so had their joy and their peace, which Paul mentions here as well. The Bible talks about peace from God, the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And we talked about the vertical relationship with God being restored. And Romans 5, 1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer at war with God. He's no longer angry with us. He's applied the work of Christ to us. Christ has satisfied his wrath, his anger. We have peace with God. So we have a clear conscience. We have joy. We have gladness. And then we can have peace with one another who also share in that relationship. And we have the peace of God that passes all understanding. We might walk through the valley. It might get dark. It might look scary. But we go through the trial and we can have peace in the trial. Because we know God is faithful. God will see us through. And that he is working in the midst of the trial. So as Christians we have these things. But Paul wants these Christians hope and joy and peace to increase and in fact, to abound. And so how does that happen? Well, notice that little preposition. That's a preposition, right? In, I-N. In believing. In believing. Well, it comes from God because he's praying to God to supply it. But the means, in addition to God, is in believing. Well, what is belief? It's faith. What has Paul said about faith earlier in chapter 10 and verse 17? Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ, specifically preaching, but also the word of God, all 66 books of the Bible, that which has been recorded for us and handed down to us, given by whom? The Spirit. Faith is God's gift, Ephesians 2.8 says. Romans 10, 17, again, it comes through the word of God. Psalm 119 and verse 50 says, This is my comfort in affliction, for your word has given me life. Hebrews 4, 13 or 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And how 
is the word of God used in this way by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 6 and 63, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. In Hebrews 3, 7, the author quotes Psalm 95 and says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95. What am I talking about? I'm talking about that thing we call a theology of word and spirit. People want to get a word from God. What do you say to that? Open your Bible. Read it. People want to hear God. What do you say to that? Like the meme says, open your Bible and read it out loud. It's the word of God, and it's given to us by the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. So I just want to challenge you. Do you have a prayer closet in your home? Not one that says prayer closet. Do you have a place that is silent, free from distraction, free from the television, if you have one, free from your cell phone? Maybe, fathers, are you helping this, free from small children yanking on mommy's dress or pants or whatever? Do you have a place to read the Word of God, to be filled with the words and the Spirit of God? I've been challenged by this. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm in the Word all the time, but I have to feed my own soul with God's word. It's hard for me. So let us be people of the word, therefore people of the spirit. And so Paul concludes this section here. I I hope as we've looked at Romans 14, this section of chapter 15, that you have a, a, a bit of an understanding of what this is about, this Christian liberty, and a greater appreciation for it, that we who have differences in the body are not to divide because of them, but we're to come together to them, that those who are stronger are not to steamroll over the weaker, that the weaker are to give the benefit of the doubt to those who are stronger, and that it is truth that unites. The truth sanctifies, Jesus said, and God's word, thy, tr- thy word is truth. And so may we at Providence be a welcoming people, maybe we be a people of the truth. May we be a people in pursuit of God's truth, those who are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and become a mature man in Him. Let's pray.